HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Fine Diners Over 40, a members-only dinner club for singles and couples who enjoy dining at highly rated restaurants and sharing the experience with others. Learn more at finedinersover40.com. That's finedinersover40.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and I feel that music maybe is just a little tame for today's show. (laughs) Uh, Today's show is um, an interview with the author Andrew Friedman, who's also a host on his own show here at Heritage Radio Network called Chef Podcast. No, that's my... That is my social media handle. What is the show called? Uh, Andrew Talks to Chefs. Andrew Talks to Chefs. Same thing. Andrew Talks Talks to Chefs. I don't know how that handle was available, by the way. I just got that last year. But but at the name of his book is Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. And if you thought, depending on what age you are, I suppose, out there, that chefs, American chefs particularly, were always these high-profile... Uh, rock stars that we read about or watch on television today, you know, you just have to turn the clock back a little bit. And it was funny because sometimes, and this show is on culinary history after all, but sometimes when you live through an entire revolution or evolution, as I did, I didn't think of it as being history. And I look at it and I said, oh my God, look at the history here. It is history. So Andrew, welcome and congratulations. And thank, thank you. you for writing this book. Oh, it, thank you. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I've well, always wanted <laughs> to, be, to a, be on this show. Oh, that's sweet. Um, it So you basically chronicle the American chef movement from the, you know, the early 60s through um, through, well, almost present day. We don't, you know, no reason uh, to go that far. Early 90s. Early 90s. Yeah. And and you do talk about how it how it became a thing of its own. Yeah, 
um, a little bit about why you why you went there. So the the book for me um, is very pointedly a chef. I, I like to say it's a chef book, not a food book. Um, and and what I mean by that is, I feel like there've been a lot of histories written about <clears throat> excuse me about the food movement, whatever you want to call that, yeah. the American food revolution, whatever it is that happened over the last 40 years. But, um, and I feel like chefs have always been sort of players in that story, the way it's been described, uh, along with other people, food writers and, you know, television personalities and the Julia Restaurant, Childs yeah. of the world yeah. and restaurateurs. And, and I didn't feel like anybody had just sort of separated out the chefs and and talked about how this profession, you know, the subtitle of the book is how food lovers, free spirits, misfits, and wanderers created a new American profession, and it's very deliberately not new American cuisine. Uh, and as you were just saying a minute ago, I don't think many people who weren't there realize, but you know, up until the early seventies, and I don't think it really changed substantially until about a decade later. It was almost unheard of that you would be a kid from a quote-unquote good home in the United States and turn to your parents one day and say, hey, mom and dad, I think I might like to be a cook. Right. And when these people started doing that, their parents flipped out. I mean, they thought they were throwing their lives away. Very often they thought they were throwing away college degrees or, or even law degrees. Um that was the backdrop. And and the other thing for me is there were all these books that I love. One of them is one of my favorite books. It's called Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, about how the American film directors of the 70s transformed American filmmaking and transformed Hollywood. There was a book called Please Kill Me, which is an oral history of punk rock. There's a book called Live from New York, which is an oral, uh, an oral history of Saturday Night Live. All of those books, which I adore, are about how some creative medium transformed against the backdrop of the 70s and how the sort of societal, cultural things that were swirling around at that time drove new people into those fields and changed what was being produced in those fields. And I always felt there was a book to be written about chefs that would kind of, I'm not comparing myself to those books, all of which are classics, or at least two of them are, um, but... Uh, a book that kind of belonged on that shelf that was about chefs and against that same backdrop. Well, you did, and you you did it, and you did it. Thank and you. What I um, did not say at the top of the show about you is is that you are no stranger to um, the world of chefs and restaurants being yeah. involved since what about ninety three or so, but you've also co-authored several books with yeah chefs. more than two dozen yeah. yeah cookbooks and memoirs so you were right in there in you know in the in in their lives and and in the background so you you had this sense of of where you were going i imagine but you really did give us a history and it is it is a history i was amazed at the turn of events and how many things i'd forgotten uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah forget a lot during that period sure. the late 60s yeah. and early 70s but yeah. um but you really you really uncovered a lot and didn't you were very fair in not making a lot of proclamations, making giving your own opinions of why something happened. You really took their words. Thank you. Well, it's interesting. You're the second person this week. I don't think she'd mind me saying it. I had a conversation with Sarah Moulton the other day, who we were supposed to do an event together 
last night that got snowed out. We're hoping to reschedule it. She was going to moderate a, a panel discussion. And she was reading the book, and she said, you know, I think you've been very fair. And I am actually love that word. And it's funny. I did a, a talk with Ruth Reichel last week in, in L.A., and, you know, I had kind of, we never got to it on stage, but we were talking about what we were going to discuss. And, and I, had, I had made this comment that I thought it might be interesting to talk about the pluses and minuses of me writing about this period, not having lived through it and not having been a participant. I was alive during these years, yeah. but I wasn't you around the industry. Right. So I, I don't have scores to settle. I don't have credit to grab. I don't have... Um, uh, an agenda. I really had no agenda. And um, so when I came into this and would get different stories from people, for example, Wolfgang Puck, and uh, who everybody knows, and, and Patrick Tarai, who many people may not know, but who was the owner of Mame Zone, which was the restaurant where Wolfgang was immediately before opening his own place, Spago. Patrick and Wolfgang have different, completely credible versions of several events. If you talk to one of them, it sounds completely believable and accurate and honest. And then you talk to the other one about the exact same event and you'll get a completely other, another story that sounds equally, you believe they would both pass lie detector test. <laughs> so faced with moments like that, I just put both versions in the book. Yeah. And um, I actually find that interesting. And I, I did too. I, I enjoyed that aspect. And you do say you. that. You say that. I mean, this can't, this comes up not just with those two, no. but with other people as well. That these are oral histories, and you and you reported these histories. And you said there's always two sides to a story. Well, right? that's the Jeremiah Tower's favorite line. There's three sides to every story. Three Your sides. side, the other side, and the and the truth. Yeah. I mean, there were places where if I spoke to enough people, and I felt like I had a really strong journalistic sense of what was accurate. I presented that as the as the version of events. Um, but in other cases, you know, the funniest thing to me there's these four chefs on the cover of the uh, on the cover of the book who were the original crew from Michael's Restaurant in Santa Monica, which is going through a huge renaissance right now, miraculously wow. almost. Interesting. Yeah, he has a new young chef there named Gabe Thompson who's. They made Jonathan Gold's top hundred list this year. Huh. I mean, it's. I was just there the other night for a drink. They're they're. I saw John McEnroe and Bette Midler separately coming out. Oh, the um, stars have descended already. It's so yeah. It's kind of recaptured some of its glory there. But my the four guys on the cover of the book. One of them is a chef named Ken Frank, who's currently at La Toque in Napa, and Ken left the restaurant after a few months. Most people think Jonathan Waxman was the original chef of Michael's, but. Jonathan was actually appointed after Ken left, and prior to that was a sous chef. But all four of those guys pictured on the cover gave me a different story of how Ken left the restaurant. Hmm. You know, and again, they're all completely. When you hear them individually, if you weren't kind of industrious as a as a journalist or as a writer, you feel no need to go ask anyone else. It just sounds, okay, that's what happened. Yeah. But then you talk to another one, you get a different version. Well, it's interesting because when I first saw, you know, I, I, you sent me the galleys, yeah. you know, way back when, so yeah. I, and the picture is on the cover, and I'm going, wait a minute, I know that's Jonathan Waxman. I yeah. know that that, you know, so I'm picking everybody out, and I think Mark Peel was the one I had the hardest time, and I, mm. I really wanted to guess everybody. Yeah, out. yeah. So let's let's step back for our listeners sure. who are saying, well, what are they talking about? Yeah. What do you mean, uh, the American food scene, American chefs, and, and what was happening? So, well, a couple of things. Uh, one is... Um, in the 
late 60s, early 70s, for various reasons, a couple of different populations of young Americans started to become very interested in food and or professional cooking. And, and I think these were really, it's very hard these days to understand. You know, a lot of the book in the first half is kind of divided amongst the Bay Area of San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York, but they're separate. Um, I would even say L.A. and New York. I mean, yeah. from what my perspective. Largely, know, really, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there's a, um, there were very different things going on. So first of all, um, there was this new interest in in food as a sort of sensual, eventually political medium, uh, you know, political, I guess I uh, epitomized by Chez Panisse and the whole kind of culture of that place, but also just this sensuality. You know, these were kids, American kids who had kind of grown up on a kind of industrialized food, canned food, frozen peas and carrots, TV dinners, um, you know, this kind of very limited repertoire of things that uh, would be cooked in an American kitchen, like meatloaf and a roast chicken. And this is kind of what American food was, if there was such a right. thing. And um, and when and you then, went out to dinner, it was... French. French. Yeah, a fancy meal in this country was a, was a French meal. And, and, and even the French food, you went to different restaurants and the menus were almost interchangeable. It was, I call it the Escoffier playbook. You know, they all had this, it was so, there was, they were so interchangeable that if you were a young cook in New York City and you wanted to pick up some extra shifts, make some extra money, and you worked for, at let's say, La Cote Basque, well, you could go work in one of the other restaurants and, and basically just, cook what are we, the same thing. what's on the menu right yeah. now? And you could do it. Uh, which is unthinkable today that you could just jump in like that, but literally you could. Um, but you know, these young Americans, I connect this again to what was going on in the background. So you had the war protest, you had this new, uh, you had, you had rock and roll and, and punk music and all of this stuff starting to happen. You had independent movies. There was a real sort of wildness in the culture. Mm -hmm. There was also, and this is mostly for men because of the time, there was the draft. So in yeah. addition to the war protest, and I had never even thought of this until I did some interviews, but there were a lot of people who were young men at the time who, you know, the older brother of their best friend had gone over and, and died in combat. Right. And then you have a draft number. And all of a sudden you were thinking about your life and mortality at an age when many people didn't. And, and a lot of those people started thinking, you know, I don't want to become my parents. I don't want to put on a suit and tie and be a lawyer. I don't want to go to an insurance company. I don't want to be an accountant. And as Tony Bill, I don't think I use this quote in the book, but Tony Bill was a very successful film director and producer. He produced The Sting, won an Oscar. He had a restaurant with uh, Dudley Moore in Venice Beach, California. You mentioned it, but in you the don't, 80s. I don't know yeah. what say, yeah. But Tony made this comment to me. He said, you know, Andrew, some people picked up a guitar. Some of those young kids who were influenced by all this stuff picked up a movie camera. And some of them picked up a knife kit and became chefs. Yeah. And uh, so that was, those were sort of the, the forces, I think, that, that opened people's minds up to the idea of cooking. The thing that I, I have to point out, though, is I really believe there was this very distinct East Coast thing, and specifically the Northeast, of what I kind of call the, like the accidental chefs. There were a lot of young American kids from 
blue collar or agricultural homes, you know, upstate New York, New Hampshire, New Jersey. There's this whole generation of, of these people who became chefs almost by accident. They, 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 they were very independent kids. They were kids who very often did not relate to school, did not like being in school. And in search of spending money, took jobs as dishwashers. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't Shorter realize cooks, how many chefs became, yeah. started as dishwashers and fell in love with the kitchen. before the, and, that, and that became the gateway to eventually to becoming cooks. And I'm talking about some of the best chefs right. in that era. Right. Um, I think so it's that still, was and whole, I think it still happens. It still yeah. does, yeah, yeah. But I think now there's obviously more awareness of the profession. And you know, back then, I think it was these kids who kind of didn't fit in anywhere else mm-hmm. who found uh, the professional kitchen. And it was a time where Nouvelle Cuisine, which was you know literally new cuisine, this new style of uh, what we now take for granted, you know, very personal food from chefs, plated compositions was sort of the precursor I think to everything that happened here and it was when that was sort of peaking that a lot of these young kids found their way into kitchens and and started to see cooking as maybe a, a, a career and you know it's interesting that it was a it's a very good um, you know broad stroke of what you say what was going on in the era 68 the year that changed America you know yeah. as as a lot of people proclaim um, also another thing that that I think had a big influence, and you do give credit to it, and you talk a lot about it in the book, um, and that is travel became more accessible. It used to yeah. be, you know, the Europe going to Europe was like a big deal. You got on a boat or something. You know, yeah. now it's people hopped on airplanes and they went back and forth to Europe. You go to Europe, whether you backpack around yeah. Europe or or what, and all of a sudden your eyes are opened yeah. because you need to eat, right? And you go and you look at the food and you go, oh my god, this tastes unbelievable yeah and the food was was different there was no questioning the fact that the food tasted different and food in america i have say this on the show a lot when i talk about culinary history and food history yeah is food took time in america to grow up totally and, totally and the other the thing that i think is interesting about the travel piece which i sh- thanks for mentioning because i should have is i think there was a full spectrum of experiences available Overseas, mm-hmm. so a you had people who went over and saw just everyday food at a level they had never seen here. Right. You know, they, the great product, the um, you know, if they were lucky enough to be welcomed into people's homes, just the way what a nightly dinner was there versus here, uh, the ceremony of the table, um, all of that stuff that's been it's I say romanticized, but it's just the way it was. Was well, the way it was. Right? Um, you know, Evan Kleiman, uh, who was a chef before she started hosting her great radio right. show, you know, Evan tells the story of coming back from Italy and wanting to make broccoli with fresh garlic. And, you know, her family only had garlic powder. <laughs> um, I mean, that sounds crazy today. Um, the other end of the spectrum was people who went over and saw what was going on in restaurants, you know, saw the Nouvelle Cuisine, the three-star Michelin restaurants, and that was a new that was a that new was, movement that pe- was just happening yeah. at that and time. People too, I had say. I just got a note, I probably shouldn't say who it's from, but you know, in the in the book, David Lederman, who became a very well known chef in New York and then founded David's Cookies, right. um, David tells this story of going over in like seventy four uh to Trois Gros, uh the restaurant uh the Trois Gros Brothers restaurant and seeing the grand dessert, you know, they brought out all like thirty different preparations. 
and people around him were being very sort of, you know, uh, restrained and having a little of this and a little of that. And he requested a little of everything. Um, and I got a note. So David was on the East Coast. I got an email from one of the California chefs featured in the book uh, two nights ago saying it was amazing how many common epiphanies we had. I remember going to Trois Gros and being blown away by the cheese and by the desserts, right? Yeah. And these are yeah. people who never, I don't even know if those these two people have ever, ever met. knew each other. Or right? even to this day know each other. No, One's I, still I, on the East Coast and one's still in California. I was, I mean, I, it was hard for me to take this book as preparation for an interview because I was just reliving yeah. so many yeah. experiences yeah. and knowing so many people in sure. the book or having yeah. been there when they first opened and, you know, from, you know, all these different restaurants. Yeah. But I, too, went over to Europe in 68, my husband getting out of the draft and uh-huh. but always knowing he was going to go to medical school. Yeah. And we stayed there for five years. Wow. Came back once in five years. Yeah. Came back at the end of that five-year period saying, oh, yeah, I'm ready to, you know, be an adult now and grow up. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, could not find anything to cook with. Right. Couldn't find the cheeses, couldn't find the herbs, couldn't find the oils, couldn't yeah. find the fresh produce. You know, it was, I mean, unless you were fortunate to live someplace in a rural area and grew your own. Yeah. These things were not available. No. And you, you do point that out very clearly in the Thank book. you. Yeah, yeah, and there's so many stories I didn't even, you know, I, I started my career collaborating with Alfred Portale, and the story's in the Gotham Barn Girl cookbook, but, you know, when he first started at the Gotham, I remember him telling me this story that to get sushi-grade tuna for the tuna tartare that he did, he used to have to personally go down to Chinatown, and he would buy a whole tuna, get in a taxi with this thing wrapped in newspaper on his lap, and bring it to the Gotham. I mean, this is what a whole generation of cooks did. Yeah. This, I spent a fair amount of time talking about Larry Forgione, who started to develop was... a network, forget American Place, where he did it, before that, River Cafe, where he kind of got known for it. Mm-hmm. But even before that... He was the chef at Regine's, which right. was a nightclub, nightclub. basically, <laughs> that had a Michel Gerard consultancy restaurant in the back. And Larry was the chef there, the day-to-day chef. And he told me at one point he was spending half his time working the phones all over the country to find product that he would then have shipped to New York for yes. use in the restaurant. Hear that, chefs? Phones. You know, not email, yeah. not, <laughs> no, you know, but not he, the internet, but phone. You had to he, get on the phone. It was phone. amazing. And, yeah. you know, when he was at River Cafe, the owner of Buzzy O'Keefe used to send a, a van to JFK periodically to pick up all Larry. This is pre-FedEx, to pick up all of Larry's deliveries. <laughs> um, and Larry was very honest when we interviewed. You know, he said, I wasn't trying to change the world. I had just seen this stuff when I was in London, and I, I wanted it. I needed it to do what I, to realize what I wanted to cook. You... Talk about a an evolution, I guess, or a change, or revolution issues, whatever you want to call yeah. it. You know, there yes, there was a change. There was this this desire for these chefs to create something new, make it their own, mm-hmm. not follow the stringent um, rules set down by the French uh, cuisine. Take us back to what you feel or well, of course, there was a chef who did start to change a lot of that, and you give a lot of credit to Paul Bocuse for the for starting some of those movements. Mm-hmm. But so we go to California. Do you think that's really? Do you think we're gonna we're gonna end up with Al? Say Alice was one of the Alice Waters being one of the people who kind of started us on a track that way. Well, which, are we talking about food or are we talking about the chef profession? Uh, the chef 
the chef profession presenting food that was theirs, that was American? Um, I mean, yes, although... Because we talked about Larry Forgione, so immediately I'm thinking, you know, yeah, American, American food, you know, but... Yeah, I mean, to me, Chez Panisse is kind of a funny case to me. You know, when, it's, when the restaurant opened, it was French cuisine written in French on the menu. Yes, it was. But it was low. But it I was, don't say that as a criticism. I just think it's something that's not. But widely. it was all about sourcing local, local ingredients too, which is where we, you know. Yeah, I mean, I I think that rest. I think that restaurant was important. I, you know, in the opening pages of the book, I do, I did feel it was important to point out that it it wasn't, to, as far as I'm concerned, the be all and end all. There were there were contemporaneous things happening. You know, I point out the example of this guy, um, Bruce LeFevre, who had been an American GI who had traveled around Europe, eaten Nouvelle Cuisine before it was ever called Nouvelle Cuisine, and was trying to write a novel, needed some money, opened a restaurant in, in Denver, Colorado in 1965. This is six years prior yeah. to Chez Panisse, called The Paragon, where he did basically his version of what we would now call Nouvelle Cuisine. You know, in New York, there was John Novi, who had the Dupuis Ooh, Canal Dupuis House, Canal, which right. opened just before Chez Panisse. So, yeah. uh, you know, I do spend some philosophical time in the book kind of thinking about why that restaurant has kind of attained dominance as... Because I would tell people I was writing the book and they would go, oh, so other than Chez Panisse, who are yeah, you writing about? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I guess because it was such a springboard for for so many new young chefs who... I think a couple of things. I think, out. I think the fact that so many people started there, that it became even a place for people who had started elsewhere to come spend some time. Um, I think the romanticism of Berkeley... California as, had it, yeah. No, but I think Berkeley huh? as a full... Everything we were talking about 10 minutes ago, flowed, Berkeley had all of it, yeah. right? Yeah. It had the food as art. It had food as performance. It had these drop... Uh, it had the war protest movement. It had um, it had the counterculture. It had, I mean, it was all there. Yeah. And, and importantly, the restaurant still thrives. Almost every restaurant in this book is gone. And Chez Panisse, I mean, good luck getting in tonight, you yeah, know? Yeah. So I think that is part of it also. Yeah, there's um, a lot of romance that surrounds But I, I, as a writer, and I, I kind of acknowledge this in the book, it, Chez Panisse is a, it's a little fraught for me because there's a lot, there's this whole shadow population of people who as soon as I would turn off the recorder would go, you know, Chez Panisse isn't everything, you know? <laughs> and I would go, oh, well, do you want to make a comment about that? Oh, no, not no, me. No, not me. No, right, not me. Right, right. But, but by the same token, it's obviously one of the most important restaurants in American culinary history. So, you know, I think there's this weird seesaw thing that happens. You also have in the last few years have had Jeremiah Tower out there trying to own it. Right. So, the, you know, there's this, I feel like there's this constant recalibration of people wanting to take it down a little bit, but then immediately needing to qualify that because it's weird. Yeah, it's a very yeah, yeah. fraught thing for someone who wasn't there. We're going to talk more about this. That's and fine. then about a lot of things that yeah. came out of that whole evolution when we come back after a short break. So hang in there. Come for the food, stay for the friends. 
Fine Diners Over 40 is a members-only dinner club for singles and couples who enjoy dining at highly rated restaurants and sharing the experience with others. Fine Diners Over 40 appreciate food as art, as cultural adventure, as scientific experiment, and best of all, food as an opportunity to take pleasure in the company of others. Join them for culinary and social adventures in New York and Seattle. Food may be the main attraction at Fine Diners Over 40 events, but it is the friendly and interesting members who carry the day. Join them for an evening of fine dining, fun, and stimulating conversation. While enjoying innovative tasting menus by first-rate chefs, you'll talk movies, theater, pets, sports, travel, and more. Epicurus said it best, We should look for someone to eat and drink with before looking for something to eat and drink. Learn more at finedinersover40.com. That's finedinersover40.com. Hi, we're back. Thanks to my engineer, Dave Tattashore, for ramping up the music a bit. Yeah, (laughs) I'm talking to Andrew Friedman, who has just published, hot off the press, um, a book on chefs called Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, How Food Lovers, Free Spirits, Misfits, and Wanderers Created a New American Profession. I had to read it from the front of the book because that's a long one. (laughs) Yeah, wow. Um, But yeah, uh, how chefs, I mean, the whole... The whole aura, the whole, the whole profession of being a chef. What action? And this, I have to tell you, comes up on my show. I, I we can now do thanks to the internet do a wonderful search on each of my shows. How many times this comes up? And that is when chefs began to be recognized as the force behind your whole experience in this this thing we call a restaurant. You yeah. know, it was always the restaurateur. Everyone knew who owned the restaurant. Yeah. Everyone knew who stood at the door and greeted you and said yeah. hello. And no one ever knew the chef's no. name. Never. And it wasn't until, you know, this around this time that chefs got out from behind the stove. Yeah. At least as far as their, you know, their name. Well, you know, again, I think, um, you know, we were just talking about the whole Alice Waters. Right. <clears throat> Jeremiah Tower opera, which I'm assuming... A lot of people listening to this are familiar with. Perhaps, perhaps not. Um, well, well, we can go there. Well, I mean, so Tower came in. There was a the interesting thing to me, and and I, I reference this in the book is a lot of people who have written about this time have some version of what I just said to you before the break. Um, you know, uh, Paul Friedman, who just did right. ten restaurants right. that changed America a year or two ago, says something in there about all the detract this you know these detractors who are out there. You're going to know how to pronounce his name. I've never met him. Patrick Kuh, Kuh, who wrote Last Days of Oak Cuisine. Yeah, he was on the show. I had him uh, on by phone on the show. But he had. talks in, in the book, in his book, about this exact same thing um, and also references that people wouldn't go on the record with him. It is a fascinating phenomenon as a writer. Um, but Tower, so Alice, you know, my focus is chefs, right? And it's fascinating to me. Alice was never, she was not the chef no. of Chez Panisse. No. When the restaurant opened, uh, um, forgive me, <clears throat> there was a chef named Victoria Croyer, who's now so pretty well known as a cookbook writer. Victoria Wise is her mm-hmm. name now. Um, she was the original chef, and then she left. And then Jeremiah Tower came in, and force of nature, Harvard-educated, uh, obsessed with food, a real scholar, really knew his history, had been around the world. You know, I say of him in the book, he didn't need to go to 
backpacking around Europe to have an epiphany. Like he grew up that way. <laughs> he grew up eating great food and yeah. cooking and through dinner parties when he was at Harvard. And and he comes in and the two of them, it's sort of this crazy Lennon McCartney, Steve Jobs, Wozniacki kind of chemistry. The place just takes off. They start doing elaborate, creative menus, thematic menus. They did a regional California dinner that kind of treated American food with sort of a reverence uh, that had never really been applied that's, to American food. That was a seminal right, dinner, right? Right. That's what I. That's what and, I really was touching on. Yeah, yeah. And and Jeremiah forever has felt, and I think most people will tell you this is probably accurate that he never received at the time anyway and for years after appropriate credit for his contribution um he's barely acknowledged in the first shape panisse cookbook um and you know that turned into a whole um you know he's really still i think very angry about it he's been on a campaign for the last several years that kind of culminated in the documentary the last Mm -hmm. magnificent you know but I, i do make the point in the book that there's all this personal uh, I mean, the two of them had a relationship, and even that's a little cuckoo because mm-hmm. <laughs> Jeremiah's gay. Um, uh, and, you know, at some, I think what all of the personal drama obscures is what you said a minute ago, which is it was an, a conflict and a battle for dominance between an owner and a chef. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the defining, recurring themes of the 70s and 80s in restaurants in this country. You had these people I referenced a few minutes ago, Patrick Tarai, mm-hmm. who owned Ma Maison, <clears throat> and Wolfgang Puck. And a lot of people who ate at Ma Maison didn't know Wolfgang was there. Wolfgang saved that restaurant. That restaurant was on its way to dying yeah. in less than a year. <clears throat> and, really now, and now and now everyone knows his and name. Yes, right, and then Wolfgang, it. you know, the next thing he did was Spago, which was an overnight sensation. And then, you know, you blinked and he had more restaurants, different concepts. He was on Good Morning America. Um, You know, at Michael's, there was a whole tension when that opened in Santa Monica between Michael McCarty, Mm -hmm. who was the owner, who did help write the menu and all that, but was not really the chef, although he's photographed in the famous picture. In whites, on the cover of your book, In whites, and and there are, he, Michael doesn't really cop to it today, but you know there are people who were around back then who say he kind of tried to pass himself off as the chef. Um, you know, but Ken Frank was already a known quantity in Los Angeles. He was, I mean, at the age, even before he was 20, he was known as this American chef with some serious chops. He'd cooked in a bunch of restaurants. He was a bit of a hothead back then. And he and Michael, it was never going to last. It was never going to last. Mm. So he was gone. You know, you come to New York and you had this famous falling out between Drew Niporent and David Boulay. Mm-hmm. And um, it just goes on and on and on. It, it was just these people, you know, at River Cafe, which is not far from where we're sitting today in Brooklyn, um, before there was a Brooklyn dining scene, there was right. this River Cafe. You know, Buzzy O'Keefe, the owner had the amazing good taste to hire in succession an unknown Larry Forgione, an unknown Charlie Palmer, and an unknown David Burke. Right. Now, why did each of those people leave that restaurant? They didn't have a fight with Buzzy O'Keefe. They wanted to become owners. Right. And he had zero interest in having a partner. Zero. So that's why they He was they actually, and, and I think in a way, he was actually doing them each a favor. 
because That's it's sort of like I would sort agree of, with that. You know, sometimes it's uh, it was sort of like that push out the Kick door, you out the it, nest. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, and then and they all went on to do wonderful Huge. things. Huge, yeah, yeah, they all went on to great stuff. But that was the the reason for that. Um, uh, you know, uh, it's interesting if you look at the current restaurant scene. This all feels so long ago, but in a way, it's not. You know, most <laughs> right. of Still, Most of these people I'm talking new. about are still with us. That's right. Um, uh, a lot of them, almost all of them, amazingly to me, are still working. I remember going to interview Cindy Paulson at Cindy's Backyard Kitchen in, in St. Helena uh-huh. on a Friday afternoon at the end of a two-week research trip. And the guy at the podium said, oh, yeah, she's in the kitchen. Just go down the hall. Turn, And I went back, and she was pouring wine around. I think it was a lamb shank, getting ready to like still doing her test thing. a recipe <laughs> like on a Friday night. And I'm like... I'm like, you know, there's people half your age who have already moved on from this, you know, have already passed this on to their, you know, quote unquote, chef de cuisine. Yeah. And, and, uh, but I think the modern model, I think the people like, you know, Daniel Hum and Will Gadara, um, Nick Kakonis and uh, Grant Ackett's, these partnerships where both the owner and the chef are to whatever extent in the spotlight, mm-hmm. where they're both known, where it's very much seen as a sort of uh, duet. You know, I think those relationships are built for success. I think this era that we're talking about, um, it was just almost designed that somebody was going to feel like they were getting the short end of the stick, right. both in terms of credit, power, money, all of it. Yeah. And, and this whole period is just littered with these professional divorces, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Grant Akats and, and in particular because we're talking so much about the coast. And, of course, that's where things kind of happen and change a lot. Of, yeah. You know, it's London, Tokyo, and New York City, right? Yeah, but yeah. the East Coast versus the West Coast yeah. and things happening, um, not always simultaneously, but, but then, yes, indeed, they did travel to places like Chicago. Mm-hmm. It Eventually, that occurred. And, yeah. and, you know, other places. Now, look at Oregon and Maine. And it's now it's just, it's just, it's everywhere. Yeah. There's, there's just fine cuisine everywhere. Now, you say, and I'm just kind of fast forward here to a couple sure. of things, because you do say in the book, when we forget breaking away from the French people, also, it was very difficult for a, a cook I'm going to call him a chef, but a cook uh, to get hired by a lot and of the a French young chefs. American a young cook. American cook to yeah, get hired by the French Yeah, I could talk about chefs. that. We don't have time, but the, no. the horror, the way you young Americans got treated right. in French kitchens was, I mean, Buy it's funny book. now. <laughs> Buy the book. Read yeah, the book. It's funny yeah, now, it's but they great. were not treated well. They were definitely yeah. second-class citizens. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was a, a raucous time. Uh, the whole, well, it still is, but I mean, yeah. kitchens, restaurant kitchens are, are renowned for being you know, raucous environments, yeah. sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Right. I mean, there you got it right there. But you do write at one point in the book that um, one of the defining threads of the evolution of the American chef in the late 70s and 80s, because we're, you know, going into the 80s now, is um, in New York City in particular, is a story of three, three different worlds, um, the aspiring Americans the CIA, mm-hmm. Culinary Institute of America, and the whole French-European old guard yeah. colliding, becoming acclimated to one another, and eventually unifying. Yeah. Um, tell me how the, in particular, the CIA figures into that. Well, 
it's so interesting to me because the old French guard and the young American, or rather in the CIA, both are sort of grew out of World War II, right? So you had mm-hmm. all these chefs who came uh, to do the French pavilion at, uh, at the uh, World's Fair in 1939. That comes to an end. France was occupied. <laughs> they stayed here and, and yeah, started, opening, right. started opening <laughs> restaurants, and that became, you know, Le Pavillon, the right. pavilion. That's where that restaurant came from, Henri Soule. Uh, and... Um, and then the Culinary Institute of America was originally created as a trade school for returning GIs to teach them. By two women. Yes. Yeah. Francis Roth primarily yeah. and, 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 Catherine, uh, Ang- Angel. and yeah. Catherine Angel in uh, New Haven originally. And, uh, and then eventually moved to New York and morphed into this incredible facility that it is now. Um, that became a place... And I think it really speaks to the difference between East and West, right? The West Coasters, you know, you could, it was kind of like come as you are. Very often you could learn in the kitchen, especially the style of food out there, especially in the Northern California where it was less technique uh, heavy. But on the East Coast, there was this real fixation on mastering classic French cuisine. Mm -hmm. And these young kids, these young Americans would, would go to the CIA, which was, the easiest way, it was expensive, but it was the the easiest way to get next to some European masters and 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 be taught by them. And that was how, how it was done. And then for a lot of them, I call it the Culinary Underground Railroad. You know, you mentioned how hard it was to get into a French kitchen, even in New York City as an American. But there were these instructors there who would connect these newly minted CIA grads with opportunities in New York City kitchens. And and the most prominent example is there was a chef named, he's still alive, Jean-Jacques Rachou, who was the chef and owner of La Cote Basque. And he was uncharacteristically for a French chef at that time, open, Very open. to hiring young Americans. And there's this great story I love in the book, Charlie Palmer, who's now a mogul, you know, <laughs> and who I describe in the book as Hemingway-esque, former linebacker right. from upstate New York, a very imposing guy. And it's hard for me almost to imagine this, but when he was a young kid, one of his instructors from the CIA, they, they came down, they had lunch at La Lavandu, which was uh, Rushu's pr- prior restaurant. And at the end of the lunch, Rushu says, okay, you start on so-and-so day. <laughs> and he doesn't tell Charlie what the job is, if he's going to even get paid. And, you know, this is this young, pretty independent guy moves into a flea bag apartment in, in the t- Hell's Kitchen area and just shows up for work. And that's what it was like for these. I mean, it was like indentured servitude at some level. They yeah. just yeah. they just wanted to get in a kitchen. And, and kitchens, it's important, I think, to note that whatever they picked up at cooking school, and I think this is still true today, there was always a gap between what you learned in school and the reality of a working kitchen. I compare it to the difference between a flight simulator and, and, and getting behind plane, an airplane, right? <laughs> or obviously the stakes are very different, you know, uh, boot camp and, and combat. You know, you, you can only prepare so much for the actual moment. So kitchens are where they really completed their education. And, um, but Rashu was, uh, is a, to this day, you talk to anyone who was around in those days, their affection for this guy. First of all, he didn't treat, he took them in. He didn't treat them like second class citizens. He adored them. And, um, and they learned, you know, but if you walked into La Cope Basque, uh, 38 years ago in the morning, you would see a young Charlie Palmer, a young Rick Moonen <laughs> and a young Frank Crispo, all still working chefs. 
in the prep kitchen singing My Girl and, you know, chopping up vegetables and yeah. blanching stuff. It's a great story. I mean, that yeah. was, but that was yeah. Rashu. Yeah. But the CIA was a part of that triangle. Mm-hmm. It was very important. They would shuttle people down here. And yet there remained in a lot of the modern breakaway chef kitchens, there's this dichotomy between, oh, you went to culinary school. No, you don't learn anything in culinary yeah. school. You know, you learn it. You, you just come in here and you, yeah. you know, work from the ground yeah, up. Yeah, or like and Jonathan Waxman says, you learn to cook in the street. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, even though he went to La Varanne in, in Paris. Right. Or maybe sometimes after they started cooking. Then they realized maybe they could benefit from learning some of the, the, you know, I the, think the basics. I think any, well, even the CIA, right? You have to do an externship. Right. Like part of your education is working in an actual working right. kitchen. Right. So I think it, whether it's, it's uh, voiced or not is a as an incomplete element of cooking school, I think it's acknowledged that that's not the be-all and end-all. There is some tension, as you say, though, between some of the, even American cooks who kind of spent time in Europe or came up uh, working for just what we would now call the apprentice system. Mm -hmm. You know, Thomas Keller never went to cooking school. You know, he's a huge patron of the CIA now, a huge supporter and does stuff with them all the time. But, you know, it was perfectly possible and still is to get an education, um, in a kitchen, if you could find a chef who wanted to show you the ropes. Yeah, well, I think what something you said is is um, important too, and that is that um, the CIA or this whole movement of people oh, falling in love with the kitchen. Yeah. And then suddenly we have cooking schools popping up all over the place. Yeah. And the CIA opens an arm in in um, in California yeah. and Singapore. And, yeah. And the French Culinary Institute, started by Dorothy Can Hamilton. Yeah. And uh, uh, all kinds of cooking schools everywhere, you know, yeah. And and I think that in the New England, you know, uh, every every area has its own cooking school. That says something to the glam, uh, romanticism. I wouldn't say the glamour because there's no glamour necessarily in the kitchen, but the romanticism of being in a restaurant kitchen or in a restaurant. I think so, and I think also that kind of uh, proliferation that you just described very much coincided with the elevation of the profession. Mm-hmm. in the US. Right. I think that coincided with when you started to I mean the the FCI which is now the ICC the one that Dorothy the right. late Dorothy right. Can Hamilton started um you know opened in 84. Um well that was smack that that's when Jonathan Waxman that came to New York. That's yeah. when the whole thing was really getting stirred up and restaurants were hot and there were cover stories in Time magazine about American food and uh the tel- uh people were there was Food Network was still ten years off, but you were starting to see, you know, Wolfgang on Good Morning America every week, and you know that all coincided. I think the cachet of the profession made it very appealing to people. People saw the opportunity to create a place where these young kids who were being drawn to this flame right. could could learn. Yeah, and Julia Child, she she has, you know, she's in the background there. I mean, she was she was earlier on, much earlier on, yeah. introducing. She was introducing the country to food and fine food and saying, hey, you can do this. And I that can-do yeah, can mentality. I think she made this otherworldly French cuisine, which was on menus in another language in American <laughs> restaurants, she made it approachable. She right. made it seem, she demystified right. it. I mean, I remember when I first got to be around the business, there was a show, I think it was called like In Julia's Kitchen with the Master Chefs. Yes. And she would have like these Americans like Alfred Portali and Michael. Come on, Moore. next stand next and, to her. And, and they were in awe yeah. of her. The way they talk about Bocuse, that, that was how they treated Julia. They were so affectionate, 
um, respectful, um, just absolute reverence for this woman's place. Um, it's also funny to me that her show was called The French Chef, her early TV yeah, show. called The French Chef. She was never a working <laughs> chef in a no, restaurant, no. ever. Um, Sarah Moulton, actually, who was her assistant for a while, right. told me that she never, Julia never liked that title. Yeah. Um, but no, I think her, her role and a couple of other, you know, James Beard and Graham Kerr, the Galloping Gourmet, these people who were on television, there was a show called The Great Chefs oh, series yes. in the 80s yeah. that would do regional explorations of, of chefs. I think these are all things that made this stuff seem attainable. But I think Julia was definitely first, and I don't know how you'd say she wasn't the no, most important. No. But it, it, it changed the world. And your book really, really shows us what was going on at the, during those times and, Thank and you. what was happening. And, and ah, I loved it. Cover to cover. Thank you so much. Can <laughs> I sneak great. in one quick correction before sure. we go off? I just want to get it in the record. I was talking about Michael's before, and during the break, it occurred to me. I think I said the chef there was Gabe Thompson now. Gabe Thompson is a chef in, in the New York area, or used to be. I haven't seen him in a while, but Miles Thompson Miles, okay. is currently the chef at Michael's, and I just want to get that out there. Sorry, yeah. Miles. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm sure that he'll appreciate that. Well, I hope he's listening. <laughs> you never okay. know. Well, thank you for, for sharing all the inside story of it, and I urge you all, if you are interested in that period, whether you live through it or not, you're going to recognize the names, you're going to see the movement that was occurring, and that now we can all take part of. And it part in. And thank you so much, Andrew Freeman, thank, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And you can catch Andrew on Heritage Radio Network at Andrew Talks to Chefs. Exactly. Um, and it's uh, that's a it's a podcast. You can catch it on Wednesdays. Wednesdays at three p.m. But you don't have you know just like with this show, you don't have to catch it when it first streams. You can catch it anytime Correct. at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And thank you for listening. Again. I'm Linda Palaccio, and this has been A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.